Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing our chat about Giacomo Casanova. The, uh, the Venetian adventurer who got up to all sorts of no good during the 18th century. Of course, this is uh, a two-parter. We uh, covered the first half of his life last week. So if you're coming into this episode without having listened to the last one, I mean, what's what, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing, mate? Go back and listen to part one, you goose. I mean, what, I, whatever. Let's do it. Look, let's do a quick refresher on part one anyway um, for those who, I don't know, maybe, maybe you listened to last week's episode you've forgotten um, or also maybe you're one of those weirdos who listens to podcast back catalogs in reverse order i don't know so let's do a quick refresher here casanova born in 1725 in venice grew up to be a a quite a sharp young lad he went off to university became an ecclesiastical lawyer but on the side of this however uh he's off bloody shagging girls like it's going out of style which it isn't of course plenty of people still doing that even today i i hear uh life as a lawyer doesn't suit him all that well uh, and so he tries his hand at being a soldier and then a gambler and then a musician before finding a, a string of wealthy patrons and becoming a man of leisure instead, and he also, he's all he's got all you know has all sorts of adventures, all sorts of thrills and spills. We went over all this last week, you know, threesomes with nuns, digging up corpses, travelling around Europe, all before quite notably, of course, escaping from a Venetian prison in 1756. That's where we finished up our story last week, and uh, it's the point at which we'll pick up the tale today with Casanova once again in exile from his native Venice after this daring prison break in 1756. So. Let's get to it and follow this uh, this philandering adventure as he raced away from Venice at top speed. Here we go. Uh, before I guess before we uh, we continue the story here, it's it's worth noting that um, uh, at this point Casanova really had changed. Prison prison had changed him. After his escape, he vowed to be he vowed to himself uh, to be to be more cor- more cautious, more careful. Uh, to have more self-control, be a bit more responsible, and he seems to have stuck to this. Broadly speaking, uh, not, you know not. 100%, but he definitely he definitely grew up a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, before being locked up, he was wild and free, he was reckless and uncaring, but afterwards he was, he was a little more prudent, a little more sensible, and this worked in his favour, as we'll see. The long and the short of it is, he grew up just a little bit after his incarceration, which was, um, and, and he ended up being, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a different bloke to the one that we talked about last week, although you'll see, not entirely different. So anyway, after escaping from, uh, from Venice, Casanova, he went to Paris. Uh, his reasoning being that he'd been there before, of course, we know that. He had some contacts there, and there was one contact in particular that was very high on his on his list of people that he wanted to reconnect with. Now, if you remember from last week, the threesome with the nuns, you remember the, the story that uh, that French diplom- uh, diplomat Bernie, right? Well, Bernie had uh, had come good in the in the in the intervening time, and he was now he wasn't just a French diplomat; he was now the French foreign minister. So, quite a powerful bloke for Casanova to be mates with. You remember that Casanova tried to set him up uh, with a bird last week? Uh, well, in our time, it wasn't actually last week; it was. Several hundred years ago, as I'm sure you've you know kind of figured out by now. But anyway, a um, as I say, a powerful bloke for Casanova to, to be uh, to be mates with. So after his making after making his way to Paris, Casanova got back in touch with Bernie. They rekindled their friendship. You know, they're bloody bonding over the nuns they'd shagged back back in Venice. And once again, Casanova has found himself a wealthy and powerful patron, just how he likes it. This is a this is a classic Casanova play, of course. We as we talked about finding a rich patron to to mooch off of. But he also did something that was quite unorthodox for him as well at this time. He got a job. 
When Bernie advised Casanova to find somewhere to bolster the French treasury in order to, you know, gain favour at the royal court, Casanova actually got off his ass and started to stack some cash. Check this out. Casanova became one of the first trustees of the French state lottery, and he went around selling lottery tickets like hotcakes. He's bloody flogging them left, right and centre. This not only made him a lot of money, but also introduced him to the upper crust of French high, of high society in France. Um, so he's back in his element here. You know, he's rubbing shoulders and often uh, quite a fair bit more than shoulders uh, with the rich and powerful. And uh, in addition to uh, his wealth and his charisma and his success as, uh, you know, as a trustee of this lottery, he also used his interest in the occult and in the paranormal to impress and woo people. You remember from last week, Casanova was very much into Kabbalism, mysticism. He's a Freemason. Uh, and he conned plenty of French knobs with his, uh, with his supposed uh, mystical powers. In reality, he just used, you know, his excellent memory to fool them with numerology tricks or basic other, you know, little uh, little bits of, of charlatanism, whatever else. But doing all of this, it quickly gained him this fantastical, mystical reputation for being, you know, uh, someone who was in touch with the other side. And he also presented himself as a, bit of, uh, as a bit of an alchemist, which was very in vogue at the time, made a lot of money conning people as he talked about, you know, his search for the philosopher's stone, all that sort of stuff. He's spouting off this nonsense to some pretty, no- like a lot of people, but some of them pretty notable, uh, some notable historical figures. Um, the socialite Madame du Pompadour, for example, and the famous, uh, famous philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And they all seem to be pretty taken in by Casanova, very interested in him at the least. I mean, I don't know if they believed every word that he said because, you know, he's going around cutting about claiming to be 300 years old and that he had the secret to create diamonds out of thin air and all that sort of nonsense. So I don't know how much they believe him, but he's definitely fascinated a lot of people uh, in, in French high society, as I say. So he's, uh, he's on the up and up here. His reputation fascinated people his reputation as a mystic as an alchemist um you know he he built this reputation very solidly and you may be wondering well you're actually probably not wondering what did he use this reputation to achieve i mean need i bloody tell you mate once he had established himself well and truly in the uh, in the circles of rich and powerful i mean this bloke's name's casanova what do you think he did he got stuck straight back into his lifelong hobby jumping into bed with women at every opportunity again there are so many stories here. I mean, you can go and read Casanova's extremely lengthy memoirs if you want to get across every single one of them. But I'll, I'll share some of the best throughout this episode, just like I did last week as well. Although, again, this is by no means definitive, not by no means exhaustive, and I, I, and I probably missed some other absolute crackers as well here. But uh, one of the best ones here, one of the most interesting ones, took place in 1758 while he's off hobnobbing with a Parisian elite here. While in Paris, he reconnected with someone he'd known from years ago, a woman whose name was Justinia Wynne, right? Although not in not in the happiest of circumstances, Wynne was actually, she was pregnant, right? And her mum was trying to get her to marry this old rich bloke for his money. Now, obviously, this caused quite a scandal being, you know, after you bloody signing a marriage contract, understanding that, you know, you're pregnant. That's, that's a big deal. That isn't the sort of thing that Wynne wants to come to light. She didn't, I mean, she didn't want to marry this bloke in the first place. He's old, he's bloody, you know, I mean, he might be rich as creosote, but still not, in, not interested in, um, in, in marrying him. Uh, but regardless of this, obviously her reputation completely ruined if she if she's discovered uh, to be pregnant. I mean, this is the, the wonderful moral system of the 18th century. They're really good stuff. Um, and so she asked Casanova as an old friend uh, for help. Now, abortion was a very tricky uh, and dangerous and also very illegal thing in 18th century France. So this was a tough one to navigate at the best of times here. But still, Casanova agreed to help her. And despite both the, you know, the physical and the legal dangers here, Wynne was determined to see through the termination with Casanova's help. So in order to, um, in order to, to actually you know, get the ball rolling on this to, without raising any suspicion, without anyone sort of uh, figuring out what they were up to, they decided that they would use an upcoming masquerade ball to sneak off together 
without being noticed, right? So they made they made an arrangement, right? Casanova said, "Okay, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in a in a uh, in a mask with a checkered pattern, little rose on the side of it, mate. You come up to me. We'll get out of there. No one will notice for a couple of hours. We'll come back before the party's over, and we'll go and see if we can uh, we can get uh, you know get you treated." So this is exactly what they do. They turn up at this masquerade ball separately. They meet up again. They've got the masks on. People aren't 100 sure of who's where and what's going on. And they sneak off away from this ball to a midwife. Unfortunately, however, this midwife is not successfully able to terminate the pregnancy. She gave them medicine, she gave them drugs to try, but nothing worked. And so when, you know, in the time after this, after this uh, night where where they've consulted with the midwife, she's becoming increasingly desperate. She's getting measured up for wedding dresses uh, and she's worried that the pregnancy is going to start to show because, of course, when, you know, when people cotton on to this, when her mum or her her suitor or whoever else finds out that she's pregnant, she's going to be big trouble, big, big trouble. So desperate times call for desperate measures, and uh, obviously with Wynne being discovered as pregnant to lead up this marriage, uh, as that would be an absolute disaster. Uh, I mean, she didn't want to go through with the marriage anyway, right? But the, the consequences it would have on a on a longer life would were, were too too much for her to think about here. So she's leaning heavily on Casanova to try to find a solution here. And Casanova, he's I mean, he's doing everything he can to fi- try to find a way to end this pregnancy while also keeping Wynne safe. He doesn't want to endanger her life as well. And after asking around. Casanova was given a recipe, right, for an ointment that would apparently trigger an abortion. Now, at this point, you're probably raising your eyebrows, and with very good reason, because it does sound like, you know, hocus-pocus, pie-in-the-sky nonsense. But can I tell you this? I hope you've left some room on your forehead for your eyebrows to raise even higher, because you're not going to believe the next, the next part of this, uh, of this ridiculous tale here. According to his memoirs, right, Casanova was acting in Wynne's best interest with this treatment. He did, you know, he did get this ointment in order to, uh, in order to try to, you know, help her with the problem that she was having. But then again, he wrote all of his memoirs. So, of course, he's going to paint himself in a positive light. And there's no guarantee that stuff wasn't exaggerated for, you know, in certain ways to paint things in certain, in certain lights here. So, anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is because Casanova, he gets the recipe for this ointment, he mixes it up, and then he comes to, to Wynne and he says, right... This ointment, it needs to it needs to be applied directly to the cervix, and as he wrote in his memoirs, to obtain the necessary result, one had to employ a cylindrical machine covered with extremely soft skin. And I'd like you now to have a guess at which cylindrical machine Casanova suggested they use. That's right, Casanova mixed up this ointment, smeared it all over the end of little Casanova, and the two of them went at it. I mean, that is one way to apply an ointment to a cervix. I suppose you can't fault that logic there. But uh, yes, they were. Uh, they went at it, and then they went at it again, and then they went at it a third time, and then got up in the morning and went at it one more time, just for good measure. Yeah, he really doesn't skimp on the details in these memoirs, let me tell you. He rooted her four times, and he wanted history to know it. Um, he also confessed to suspecting that the ointment wouldn't do anything at all. But hey, a root's a root, I guess. I mean, he really was... Really could be a bit of a bastard, this bloke. Anyway, I mean, look, you know, you can call him a bastard, and he certainly was to a point. But, you know, to his credit in this situation, he didn't just hit it and quit it. He, he wasn't just, you know, just manipulating this woman into <laughs> into jumping into bed with him because obviously the ointment did nothing, right? And Wynne was, I mean, you know, she's just about resigned to revealing her pregnancy to her mother and suffering the consequences here. But Casanova actually did find a way out of this predicament for her, right? He actually got her out of having to do this. Uh, he he went out of his way to and and actually paid for a process uh, that involved her 
running away to a convent, right? He helped to organise the whole thing. He helped to fund it as well. And so it was, you know, rather than either marry this old bloke or reveal her pregnancy, Wynne was actually able to disappear. And she she fled to this uh, to this convent and she took refuge with uh, with these nuns. Now, of course, Casanova was heavily inspected to have had a hand in this um, and was paid a visit by the mum and this old rich bloke that she was supposed to marry. Uh, but he lied through his teeth to them. He lied through his teeth to them. He took the old, how dare you, moral, you know, the high moral ground there. He booted them out on, on their asses. Um, and happily, Wynne delivered the baby, baby safely. It was left in the care of the nuns. And she returned to her family eventually once that old bloke had married someone else. And this, her story does have a happy, happily ever after because she ended up doing quite well for, well for herself. She married an Austrian ambassador and lived out her days in Venice, uh, leaving behind the secret of her child and the fact that she once tried to terminate a pregnancy. By sleeping with Casanova four times, which is certainly an interesting way to uh, to go about doing that. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So Casanova, that was one of the many adventures he had in Paris, and you know, after having tried, uh, you know, he's done a bunch of, uh, he's had a bunch of different vocations. At this point, he's tried his hand as, as a public servant, now as an alchemist, uh, I guess as an amateur f- family planning specialist. Um, he's about to start a new vocation for the French Foreign Ministry. Bernie decided to put Casanova's ridiculously high charisma stat uh, to use as a spy. And, uh, and so Casanova was de- deployed on a few missions here and there to gather intelligence for his patron for the French government. And by all accounts, Casanova was very bloody good at this. Well, I mean, I've already talked about the fact that he was very indolent. He didn't like working. He wasn't a fan of, a, of an honest day's Well, I mean, I guess as a spy, it's not really an honest day's work, but just a day's work. He wasn't, in, he wasn't too into that. But he did do a very bloody good job as a spy. I mean, unsurprising, really. He'd spent the better part of his life talking people into bed with him. So I guess it's not a shock that he was, you know, able to talk people into giving uh, in, into giving up their secrets, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, it, I guess these skills come hand in hand. Um, and as the Seven Years' War began, too, he was he was sent off on some more missions for the French government, and not just as a spy, too. At one point, he was sent to Amsterdam, perhaps the wealthiest city in all of Europe at this stage of history, um, uh, to sell French state bonds. And once again, he absolutely crushed it. He missed his calling as a salesman, apparently, because he made money hand over fist. He impressed his bosses, gained a lot of favour with the French because, you know, he's, again, just raking in the dollar dues here, having a great time. And uh, so, uh, you know, so triumphant was his performance as a, you know, selling these bonds that once he returned to France, right, wealthier than ever, they offered him French citizenship with a title and a pension on the condition that he remain in France and work for the finance ministry. But we've talked about Casanova's attention span, and I'll tell you this, it had not lengthened significantly uh, at any point. He was fickle, he was capricious, and uh, and the idea of settling down in France didn't appeal to him. Also, I mean, probably a good idea with a revolution brewing on the horizon. Not not the time to be taking titles and pensions from the, from the French royal government there. Instead... Instead of accepting this offer from the French government, instead of all things, he decided to open a silk factory. I mean, I have no idea why he decided to do this. And I tell you what, it proved to be a bad move. He really did a very bad job. He flushed his newly made fortune down the gurgler by mismanaging this business into the ground. And also he slept with a bunch of the women that he employed. What a bloody surprise there. I mean, he might have been good at making money. He may have been good at bringing the money in, but he was not good at keeping it. And before before 1760, Casanova... (laughs) was once again broke. He had lost the vast fortune that he'd accrued with the lottery and with the state bonds, and once again, he was chucked into debtor's prison. He was chucked into prison for, for just owing a lot of people a lot of money, uh, and so his fortune really, I mean, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride for old Casanova there at his time in France. But he didn't remain uh, behind bars for too long. 
Uh, he didn't have to dramatically escape from prison this time. Uh, one of his wealthy patrons helped to secure his release. But even after regaining his freedom, his fortunes, they didn't improve. Bernie uh, lost his job as the foreign minister uh, and his creditors bore down on Casanova as well. And so as a result, he pulled another classic characteristic, a signature Casanova move here. No money, running out of friends, trouble closing in. What do you do? That's right, of course. He took to his heels and he fled. He, he just ran away from his problems, which is very much... Uh, I mean, that's that's the story of Casanova's life at this point. He ran to Holland and then to Cologne and then Stuttgart, uh, where once again he was arrested for his debt before finally escaping to Switzerland. And he's 35 by now. So, you know, he's, he's not an old man, but he's certainly getting on in years. And he's, he, he's starting to doubt his irresponsible, his transient lifestyle. I mean, these doubts obviously don't last, but he does have a sit down, a bit of a think in Switzerland. Go, oh, Jesus, you know, is this the life that I want to live? Um, hilariously, the, these doubts did cause him to uh, briefly consider becoming a monk. After visiting a, a monastery in Switzerland, he visited this uh, this monastery, and then he said, "Yeah, you know, look, maybe maybe this is the life for me. Maybe maybe I, you know, should give myself over to, to quiet contemplation and, and and thoughtful prayer." I'll tell you what, I'll go back to my hotel, I'll think about it, and and I'll uh, and I'll let you know how I go. Right, so. He heads back to the hotel. He's determined to sit there and you know and have a think about maybe his future potentially as a, as becoming a man of the cloth. And then he saw a smoking hottie having dinner with her mates and forgot all about it. In fact, he actually bribed one of the waiters at the hotel. This is not a joke. He bribed the waiter to give him the his waiter's uniform so he could wait on the women as they had their dinner and thereby flirt with this hottie. I mean, so much for so much so much for the idea of becoming a monk. He didn't even get to the I'll think about it part before he was off chasing another bloody girl. So yes, that, that put pay to any ideas of him becoming a monk there. Anyway. He continued to travel, uh, leaving Switzerland. He headed back into France, where he spent time visiting the famous philosopher Voltaire. Now, I read through his encounter with Voltaire, and I'm sorry to say that n- basically nothing interesting happened while these two blokes were hanging out. Casanova seemed to really admire him, um, but his exploits while staying with Voltaire in Inferno, they, they were pretty tame. You know, they talked they, they talked about all sorts of stuff, you know, philosophy and, and religion and, and, and whatever else. And, you know, Voltaire uh, was... was uh, uh, there was a point at which Voltaire offered uh, some very slim praise to Casanova, which which meant a lot to him because Casanova, oh, because Voltaire wasn't uh, particularly lavish with that sort of thing. So you know, it definitely had an effect on him. But broadly speaking, you know, there there wasn't too much. Uh, you know, the, the the as I say, the the exploits while staying with Voltaire they were pretty tame. I mean, he did have a series of foursomes with three women, two of whom were sisters. But again, pretty tame on the whole for you know for him at least. I mean brilliant this bloke he's hanging out with one of history's most famous philosophers right talking about you know high concepts of philosophy and religion and all that sort of stuff they're like that uh, he's much more interested in just getting his end away with uh, with three other birds <laughs> i mean yeah, yeah. What, what, what do you expect anyway after voltaire uh, after visiting Voltaire and Fernie, uh, Casanova headed to Marseille and then back towards the Italian peninsula, although, of course, steering well clear of Venice, where he's still a wanted man for having escaped from prison. He visited Genoa and he visited Florence before heading south to Naples. And I want to pause here in Naples to tell you another story, because this one, whoo boy. I mean, well, there, again, there are just so many. I mean, you have no idea how long this bloke's memoirs are, but I, I, I absolutely have to tell you this one. Right? I have to tell you this one. This one, this one is incredible. So. In Naples, Casanova, he met a woman uh, named Leonilda. She's aged, she's 17 years old, and he seemed to be quite taken with her. Uh, I mean, this wasn't unusual, you know, as we talked about last week, Casanova's affairs, they burnt hot and they burnt bright. And so him claiming to be head over heels was, you know, it really was par for the course when it, when it came to this bloke. He, he definitely, uh, he, he, he fell 
into love as much as happily as he sort of extricated himself out of love and, and just as swiftly as well. Anyway, these two, you know, they start, they're, they're, they're bloody going out. They're going to the, uh, off to the opera together, whining and dining, having a great time, getting on like a house on fire. Like it's, it's going very, very well indeed. So well, in fact, right? Casanova is actually starting to talk about marrying her. Although, in fairness, this may have just might, this might have been just a ruse to get her into bed with him because he actually, they actually didn't sleep together. Then again, maybe he meant it. But with his track record of getting you know bored of girls pretty quickly, that that, that seems a little questionable. Um, anyway, they haven't slept with each other for whatever reason, and so maybe he's considering considering marriage as a way to actually uh, get this girl into bed with him. Anyway, he brings up the idea of marriage with Leonilda. She seems to be on board. She's like, "Yep, absolutely, sounds fantastic." Oh, one small thing, however, though, before we get before we go through with this, she says, "You've got to meet my mum first. Obviously, you got you got to meet my mum. Got to get her on board too, right? And make sure that it's all gonna it's all gonna be fine there." Casanova goes, mate, no worries at all. Of course, happy to meet your old lady. Make sure she approves of the marriage. Not a problem at all. No dramas, right? Now, I wonder if you see where this is. I bet you do. I bet. I mean, I, I bet people can see this coming a mile away. I mean, all. I mean, this is Casanova we're talking about here. I'm, sh- I'm sure that uh, astute, astute listeners here have already figured out exactly how this story is going to end here. Because Leonilda organised for Casanova to meet her mum, right, uh, a woman named Lucrezia, and, and here is how it went, according to Casanova's memoirs. This is what happened. As soon as the mother saw me, she screamed and fell, nearly fainting on a chair. Because I will tell you this, it was not the first time that Lucrezia had seen Casanova. In fact, these two were rather well acquainted to each other, I suppose you could say. And as Casanova realises this, as he sees one of his old flames into the room here, he starts to do some quick maths in his head. He compares Leonilda's age with the last time that he had seen Lucrezia. And, yep, the numbers checked out. The last time he had seen Lucrezia had been... In the exact circumstances you're thinking they were back when he was just 19, he had been sleeping with Lucrezia, who was a married woman. And despite Lucrezia's husband raising uh, raising Leonilda as though she were his own daughter, Leonilda was in fact a product of the union of Casanova and Lucrezia. And now, almost two decades later, Casanova had nearly married his own daughter. Lucrezia confirmed that, you know, despite the affair happening behind her husband's back all those years ago, she was sure that Leonilda was his, so it was a very bloody good thing that he met her mum before jumping into bed with her. Whew, I mean, you can imagine. You can imagine Casanova, disappointed, but perhaps perhaps a little relieved at, uh, at finding this out. You can, you know, you can imagine him reluctantly moving on, leaving the two women behind him, and you would have to imagine it because... That's not what happened. What really happened, of course, is that he rooted both of them at the same time. Yep, and this is what he wrote about it. All the colours of the painter and all the phrases of the poet could not do justice to the delirium of pleasure, the ecstasy, and the licence which passed during that night. What the hell, Casanova? What the bloody hell, mate? Anyway, so... After Naples, after Naples, right, after this ridiculous encounter in Naples, Casanova, he continued to travel not just around the Italian peninsula, but also eventually uh, back to Paris and then even further north. In 1763, uh, he ended up in Britain, where in order to try to make some more money for himself, he, tr- he decided to try to sell the idea of this state lottery being so successful for him in France. 
he decided to try to sell this idea uh, to the to the to the, the the government there in Britain. Now, obviously, he's still a reasonably well connected bloke with his connection to the Freemasons and, and and the other other people that he, he he knew here and there. And so he actually managed to gain an audience with uh, with King George the Third, although he never managed to get the uh, the lottery idea off the ground. Um, Casanova, interestingly, as well, while in England, he 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 obviously was quite. Uh, Taken by or interested in uh, many of the many of the customs and the culture of the English, he actually devoted an entire chapter of his memoirs to writing about the English. I mean, he didn't speak English; uh, he was he was a bit of a stranger in a strange land. But some of his observations on on the, the this nation and its people are just brilliant. Check this out: <clears throat> the Englishman is entirely carnivorous. He eats very little bread and calls himself economical because he spares himself the expense of soup and dessert. Which circumstance made me remark that an English dinner is like eternity. It has no beginning and no end. <laughs> he was baffled when he saw some Englishmen relieving themselves openly in the street. He was disgusted when he saw, uh, he came across two men who had bet on whether an injured boxer would live or die. And they were preventing a doctor from seeing to the boxer so as not to influence the outcome of the bet. Uh, he also wrote this. <clears throat> English is very different in every respect from the rest of Europe. Everything has its own characteristics, and the fish, cattle, horses, men and women are of a type not found in any other land. Their manner of living is wholly different from that of other countries, especially their cookery. The most striking feature in their character is their national pride. They exalt themselves above all other nations. 250 years later, and nothing has changed. Anyway, it, uh, it doesn't seem like Casanova had the greatest time in Britain. Uh, he was locked up at least once. Uh, he picked up some ferocious STIs after his liaisons with some English women as well. Uh, and so before long, therefore, Casanova, he left Britain and returned to the continent where he travelled extensively uh, for the next three years. His main objective was still flogging uh, this idea of a state lottery. And so he visited, uh, visited many powerful leaders in order to try to sell the concept to them. He went to Berlin and he visited Frederick the Great. He met with, uh, with the Prussian king at the famous Sanssouci Palace just south of the capital in Potsdam. They walked through the king's expensive gardens together, which he could still do today. Uh, and they talked of all sorts of things, hydraulics and fountains, Venetian, Venetian naval power, taxation policies, and of course, this lottery that Casanova was trying to flog. But it didn't work. Frederick called it an elaborate swindle, uh, but the king seemed to like Casanova well enough, enough that he actually considered offering him a job. Uh, but of course, this didn't end up happening. Casanova, of course, had no interest in settling down. And after meeting, uh, you know, another incredible historical figure, he was uh, he was once again on his way, and uh, this time heading further, further east. He headed uh, headed into Russia, where he sought an audience with Catherine the Great, uh, and eventually made it to Moscow where he met with yet another towering historical figure, the Empress of Russia. And they talked about all sorts of things as well, including, interestingly, they had quite a long discussion about the fact that Russia hadn't yet adopted the Gregorian calendar. And Casanova, according to his memoirs, was weirdly pushy when talking to her about it. I don't know if he just had a you know a real thing for the Gregorian calendar, but he spent a lot of time with Catherine trying to persuade her that Russia should adopt it. I mean, it didn't work. Russia didn't adopt the Gregorian calendar until 1918, but you know, still good try there, Casanova old son, trying to trying to modernise the the Russian Empire there. Uh, but he was also unsuccessful in persuading her uh, into picking up this idea of a lottery as well. Uh, she said that she didn't want Russia's poor wasting their money on it, and so the idea, unfortunately for Casanova, was once again lost uh, on uh, on another on another uh, European leader there. It really wasn't paying off for him, this lottery idea, and so Casanova, he left Russia and he returned westward, stopping off in Warsaw on his way west. Uh, this was in 1766, and there he ended up in a duel 
uh, over a woman, of course. I mean, that, that, that obviously went without saying. I didn't need to explain that that was why he ended up in a duel. But the story of the duel is actually very interesting indeed. Check this out. An Italian actress, her name was Madame Benetti. She ended up with both Casanova and a Polish officer, uh, Franciszek Branicki, chasing after her. Now, Branicki and, and Casanova, uh, you know, both chasing the same woman here. And when, uh, Branicki eventually found out that Casanova was, Casanova was also after Benetti. And he, he confronted him and he, he, told, uh, he told Casanova to back off. And surprisingly, Casanova actually agreed. He said that he'd stopped chasing her. He deferred to this, uh, you know, to this, uh, to this officer who, who was a noble. Uh, and decided he obviously decided he knew which side of the bread the butter was on. Plenty more fish in the sea. Very very sensible and, and pragmatic thing for Casanova to have done there, right? But what he did next was not hugely pragmatic because Branicki, who obviously didn't know when to keep his mouth shut, he called Casanova a coward for giving up so easily. So imagine this: Branicki has gone to uh, Casanova and said, "Hey mate, you know I'm going after this bird, so I wouldn't mind if you just back off." And Casanova goes, "Mate, not a worry at all. I defer to you. Don't even worry about it. You won't you won't hear from me again." And then he went, "All right." You coward. I mean, what do you want, mate? You got what you want. Just take it and walk away. Don't worry about it. Anyway, he called Casanova a coward. Obviously, Casanova didn't like that one little bit. And so he challenged Branicki to a duel over the insight, and Branicki accepted. Although, as duels were illegal, they both had to travel out into the countryside away from Warsaw so as not to, not to be caught. The whole thing was done with all the pomp and circumstance and ridiculous honour of gentlemen. You know, they sent each other letters arranging it, saying, oh, my dear sir, I have the great honour, da-da, all that sort of nonsense. Given that they wanted to kill each other, it was all very, uh, it was all a little bit, you know, a fair bit of nonsense there. Um, but uh, it did lead, I have to say, you know, all of this, uh, all of this utterly stupid garbage did lead to an absolute cracker of a line from Casanova here. They made their way out to the country separately, right, and Brunicki, uh, supplied the pistols. He he brought a matched pair, and when Casanova picked up uh, one of the the, the pistol that he was going to use, right, Bruniki uh, gar- he he guaranteed upon his honour that the weapon was a good one, and to that Casanova replied, "I am going to try its goodness on your head," which I think is an an absolute zinger. I mean, that's that's a, that's a that's a very good line from Casanova there. Anyway, they went through with it as well. They went through with the duel. They they you know they they stood there. They did the paces or whatever, and they aimed and shot at each other. And actually, both of them hit. Brunicki hit uh, Casanova's hand, while Casanova plugged Brunicki square in the chest. And he was actually worried he killed him. Casanova, it was he, he was worried that he just killed this uh, you know this off this military officer and, and and Polish nobleman. So he fled. He ran. He he ran back to Warsaw and he was getting ready to to make his escape good there. But he actually didn't end up getting in any trouble for it. In fact, many of Brunicki's enemies, people who didn't like Brunicki, actually approached Casanova. They came to him and they offered him money for <laughs> for having for having bloody you know potentially off the block. But ultimately, both men made uh, made more or less full recoveries from their wounds. Um, although, I mean, Brunicki survived, no worries. But uh, Casanova, he, he got seen to by some doctors, by some surgeons here after the wound in his hand. And they recommended that it get chopped off. They recommended amputating the hand. They said, if you don't chop off this hand, you're going to lose your whole arm. And Casanova refused. He said, it's my, it's my hand. I quite like it being attached to me. And I'm, I'm going to keep it there if you don't mind. And just as bloody well, because he made a full recovery. His hand recovered. It took a long time, admittedly, but, you know, it was, it was 18 months before he had full use of his fingers again. But his hand did recover, and these doctors wanted to chop it off there. Um, and interestingly, the funniest part of this whole story is that after this, Brunicki and Casanova, they made up. They made up and were like firm friends after this point. They, they, uh, they even reenacted how the duel had gone while Brunicki was entertaining some guests. The two of them stood there and, you know, explained how it all happened. And when Casanova showed the guests how he'd been shot in the hand, one of them suggested, one of them said, well, you, you know, you should have put your hand behind your body, right? 
And to that, Casanova delivered another zinger. You know, after this guest had said, you know, you should put your hand behind the body, so behind your body, so it didn't get shot. Casanova said, "I thought it better to put my body behind my hand," which again, just like, oh, mate, blistering wit there from Casanova. Anyway, in 1767, Casanova returned to Paris, although he didn't stay there long. Uh, unfortunately for him, his previous cons as a mystic, as an alchemist, they'd finally come back to bite him on the ass. And after spending a couple of months hanging out in Paris, gambling, having a great time, he was actually exiled by order of King Louis XV for his prior char- uh, charlatanism. Enough people had come forward, complained about uh, complained about Casanova. His reputation was now more of a negative one than a positive one. You know, it was a, his reputation as a, as a reckless, wanton adventurer. It well and truly caught up with him by now. Uh, and so as a result, he was actually exiled by, or- by order of the king. And, and because this reputation had spread so far and so wide, uh, he actually travelled after leaving France. He travelled to Spain. He went somewhere entirely new. He wasn't so well known in Spain. Uh, he, he thought that maybe he could uh, potentially uh, have, if not a completely new start, at least something of a fresh start in a, in a country where his, uh, <laughs> you know, his, his philandering ways, his womanising and his, his charlatanism, uh, his roguery weren't so well known. But unfortunately for Casanova, his fortunes, they didn't improve all that much. He, he tried to fall into the usual pattern, you know, finding wealthy patrons with, with his, uh, his connections, especially via the Freemasons, hanging out in, uh, in higher society as best that he could, you know, try, trying to live a life of indolent luxury once again. But he really didn't end up having very much luck in Spain, not at all. Uh, his charms, it seems, were wearing off. Uh, he was arrested. He was imprisoned more than once. He even survived an assassination attempt after, after pissing off the wrong people. And so he really, really didn't have a good time in Spain and eventually was exiled again. His misadventures had caused too much trouble, and so he was given the boot. And after travelling back through France, he headed to Rome, where perhaps you know, perhaps he was feeling a bit homesick. But in Rome, he began to, uh, to make attempts to gain re-entry to his native Venice. As I say, maybe it was homesickness, maybe it was a longing to return home. I mean, he was, he was a different man at this time. He really was. You know, he, he put out feelers towards the Venice, uh, Venetian authorities. He was, um, he, he was trying to figure out if, you know, if the years that he'd spent in exile uh, made up for his, his escape from prison. And in the meantime, in Rome, he spent a lot of time writing. He wrote plays, he wrote historical texts, and he even translated, uh, translated uh, Homer's Iliad into Tuscan Italian. But he really was a very different bloke, you know. He, the, the, the high tales of, uh, of, of philandering, of womanizing, tend to take a bit of a backseat at this point in his life. He doesn't talk about them as much in his memoirs, although, you know, he's still, there are some pretty rich descriptions in there even at this point, but they certainly don't take the front and set of stage they did when he was a younger man. Um, he also did a bit of a, sp- a bit of spying for Venice as well. I think he was just hoping to, you know, get back into their good books, uh, and eventually wrote a direct plea to the Venetian Inquisition, begging to be forgiven for his uh, for his former transgressions. And eventually, these pleas they found their mark, and so it was that in September 1774, after 18 years of exile from his home of Venice, Casanova was finally granted permission to return. And I'll tell you this, there was a bit of fanfare as he made his way back to Venice after almost 20 years. I mean, he was a man who had escaped from the Leds, the infamous prison in Venice, and had lived a life of adventure across the entire continent ever ever since. He was a minor celebrity and he was treated as such for, for a while after returning to Venice. Although, as I say, he was a very different bloke from the one who had left Venice all those years ago. Not only has his attitude changed, not only was he a little more private, a little more reserved, a little more careful, he was pushing 50 
He wasn't in great nick anymore. He had scars from bouts of smallpox. His looks had faded. And uh, as I say, he wasn't anywhere near the, uh, the the chilled out, easygoing charlatan that he'd been before. He wasn't as, uh, as determined a, a rogue uh, or rascal as he had been. But still, he eked out a living in Venice, even when the shine came off the apple of having a, you know, a, a celebrity like him come back to the city. He worked as a spy for the Venetian government and as a writer. He even worked for the Inquisition uh, itself for a time. He was... Uh, he was put in charge of, uh, of investigating various affairs and potential scandals and, 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 and you know, sort of financial goings-on of the church and all of that sort of thing as well. So uh, he, did, he did okay for himself, although certainly he wasn't living the, the life of high adventure that he had been previously. And, um, you know, even if he wasn't causing trouble by seducing women all over the place and making a nuisance of himself as he, as he had been uh, beforehand, he still didn't able. He did, still didn't seem able to hold on to a good thing in the long term, unfortunately. Because in 1783, at the age of 58, he was once again exiled from Venice. <laughs> this is, I think, this is the fourth time now, or maybe the fifth time that he'd been exiled from Venice throughout his life, and it would ultimately be the last. Um, after some more, uh, some of his more seditious writing got him in trouble with the Venetian authorities, he was once again booted out on his ass, and this time he never returned. Uh, as he'd done so many times before, after leaving Venice, he headed once again to Paris. But um, it's, and it, this is where the story gets a little sad here as we, as we talk about the, the latter stages of Casanova's life, because as he headed to Paris, he found it was a very different city to the one that he'd left uh, or the one that he'd you know, enjoyed such popularity and, 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 and such, um, such adulation as a younger man. It, um, he wasn't met with the same fashionable popularity as before. In fact, he, he was embarrassingly behind the times in fact he dressed as he had when he was younger he used many of the customs and the manners of the time uh, of a time decades past for example i mean this is going to sound silly to us you know hundreds of years later but when he had been a younger man it was very fashionable as you entered a, into a room to, uh, to to perform an enormous big ostentatious bow by way of uh, of uh, you know announcing your uh, your entrance to the room and he did that as an older man and was just just straight up laughed at people just thought he was this ridiculous old relic of a bygone era you know kind of like a dad who never never cut his mullet people just laughed at him behind his back and in front of his back as well from all all angles of his back really he was he was a bit of a laughing stock but still he met some very interesting people for example the famous american founding father benjamin franklin they met at a scientific lecture on the future of balloon transportation of all things and they discussed the subject together uh, adding uh, another name to the list of historical luminaries that Casanova spent time with throughout his life. Um, but, you know, as I say, he wasn't the young, effortlessly charismatic womanizer that he'd once been. And, and as a result, he didn't stay long in Paris. He didn't feel particularly welcome there. He traveled to Vienna. And then in 1785, he gained a position as the librarian to a bohemian count at Duck's Castle between, uh, between Dresden and Prague. And it was there that Casanova spent the last 13 years of his life. He was weary of travel, his physical charms were well behind him, and so he settled into a life that, rather tragically, he described as frustrating and boring. But even if it was frustrating and boring, it was safe and it was secure. And Casanova, he was becoming an old man without too many friends left. He would visit Prague every now and again. In 1787, he may have met Mozart at the premiere of his, of his opera, Don Giovanni, uh, and in 1791, he, he also may have been present for the, uh, for the coronation of Leopold II as the King of Bohemia. But for the most part, the end of Casanova's life was quiet and it was reserved in stark contrast to the rest of it, as he instead bent his effort from fully living his life 
to fully recording it. Because it was during this time in Bohemia that Casanova wrote his extensive memoirs. And when I say extensive, you better bloody believe it. There are over 3,500 pages that record in the greatest detail all of his adventures um, until just before his readmittance to Venice, at which point the memoirs abruptly end, either because later volumes were lost or simply because he stopped writing them. We're not 100% sure. But whatever the case... We have a a full and perhaps exaggerated record uh, of this man's life, filled with stories of the countless people he took to bed, uh, which gives us a very valuable glimpse into the social life of the 18th century, as well, of course, as uh, as a rather uncompromising portrait of a deeply flawed man, lazy and indolent, undisciplined and irresponsible, immoral and selfish. He avoided doing, well, I mean anything really, anything that remotely resembled work throughout his entire life, unless unless it involved getting someone into bed with him. And he also made some outrageously unethical decisions throughout his life, most of which were scandalous then, let alone now. But history loves a rascal, and Casanova was one of the foremost rogues the world has ever seen. Giacomo Casanova died at the age of 73 on the 4th of June, 1798, after a life that was very fully lived, and he was buried at the castle where he'd spent his twilight years, although today we don't know the exact location of his grave, unfortunately. His adventures and his misadventures, they still fascinate us today, and of course his legacy is invoked with astonishing regularity whenever someone describes a, a womanising philanderer as a Casanova. And his life, for better or worse, it was, as I say, a fully lived one, and while enormously damnable, He is still fascinating to us 250 years later. And perhaps he knew that history would judge him and his story in this way based on a certain line that he wrote in his memoirs. He wrote, I loved, I was loved, my health was good, I had a great deal of money, and I spent it. I was happy. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That, at long last, is the end of the story of Giacomo Casanova, history's perhaps most famous philanderer, and and what a story it was. And certainly, I mean, you know, this podcast should not be considered a ringing endorsement of many of the decisions that Casanova made, but he certainly was a very, very interesting and, and, and fascinating figure from history. And quite aside from, you know, his personal story, the insight that he's given us into the, the social customs and the, and the lives that people lived on a day-to-day basis throughout the 18th century is really unparalleled. So there really is a lot to get from his story, even if, you know, not a lot of it has, uh, has uh, sort of weathered the storm of history particularly well anyway that is that for this episode thanks for tuning in uh all the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way halfhousehistory.net is the uh the website for the show and there you can find old episodes as well as a, a contact form if you've got some feedback or a topic suggestion please do get in touch um, and if you want to support the show, the best place to do that, of course, is on Patreon, patreon.com slash History. You can pledge anywhere from $1 to $20 a, a month, and uh, there are a range of benefits that come at, at each, of those, um, each of those levels there. So thank you, a special thank you, of course, to all of the patrons who continue to support me week in, week out. I don't know why you do it, but hey, I'm bloody glad you do. It is fantastic to have you at my back. And thank you to you for just listening as well. Even if you're not financially supporting the show, just getting those numbers up certainly helps me. And uh, it's a it's a great pr- uh, pr- pleasure and a, pr- and a great privilege uh, to bring you this dumb show every week. I'll be back.
back next week next week with uh, with more historical nonsense. Of course, if you've got an idea, please do get in touch and let me know what uh, what I should perhaps focus on for next week. But that is that. We're going to close the show as ever with a question posed on Reddit. Of course, uh, Casanova, one of the world's most famous Venetians. And so we've got another Venice-related question here. This one posed by Redditor Goreclaw the Render, who asks, Why is it only now that Venice is sinking? How do they keep an entire city afloat for that long?